name is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Inderpal Rantawa with us today, who is with the Southern California Food Allergy Institute. If you're a longtime Shandyland listener, you might remember a lovely woman named Natalie Roan, who was on quite some time ago, and she talked about tolerance induction program, TIP, T-I-P. I don't even know which way we're supposed to reference it, but it is so fascinating and so different from the way that really everybody else is treating food allergies. Dr. Randawa, thank you so much for being here. And I am absolutely so excited to get started in talking about this. Shandy, I want to say thanks. First off, uh, it's, it's great being here. I'm always interested in talking to folks who are engaged in the food allergy community, the food anaphylaxis community, as I like to call it, because that is the serious Oh, I like that. Problem. It is that serious, and I am glad you got to meet uh, some of my patients. Uh, there's you know tens of thousands of them at this stage, uh, but I think what we have done here in the last decade is really take uh, one medical condition and apply just a really unique approach to it uh, that can easily be applied to many other medical conditions. And uh, you know, hopefully, we can dive into that a little bit. Uh, a little but, bit. How about the next 30, 35 minutes worth? Because <laughs> I want to know all the things. No, I, I, no, I love that. The food anaphylaxis community. I, there's been so many episodes where we've talked about that allergy is kind of this bastardized word that covers too many things and therefore takes away from the severity of food allergy. So I like food anaphylaxis better. I think that that's a great term. Now run me through really quickly. Obviously you are an expert in the area of food allergies, but I don't want everybody just to take my word for that. So run me through the training and credentials and board certifications and all the fun. And then we're going to jump into the program. Sure thing. Um, I have five board certifications. Uh, I am board certified in internal medicine, pediatrics, uh, clinical immunology and allergy, as well as adult and pediatric lung disease or pulmonology, as we call it. Uh, my main area of focus for many years was uh, uh, lung transplant and other solid organ transplant. Still uh, in taking care of those patients to this day, uh, but my plate is uh, immensely full with other uh, other areas of, of disease. Perfect. Maybe one day you'll figure out how to do like an immune system transplant so we can get rid of these stinky allergies. All right. So you run the tolerance induction program at the Southern California Food Allergy Institute. My understanding, which is absolutely nothing, is that it takes away the testing issues and provides a treatment plan for food allergies. I mean, so wildly different than what everyone else is doing in terms of, you know, standard of care for food allergies. And let me tell you, I want in based on what I've read. So we're going to talk about that too. Walk me through how it works. You have a new patient who enrolls in the program. What do they need to go through starting at the first visit? Absolutely right. Uh, we have to do things based on data. Everything is a number. Uh, in fact, the entire program is built that way. So when we take our first information, it's all done online and proper secure uh, systems and servers, we're asking you questions that either are a yes or a no or a number. And, and literally that's how we uh, quantify that information coming in. We take all of that information and then we have you uh, arrive here and we take your blood. And in your blood, we run hundreds and hundreds, uh, approximately 400 plus tests on just a, uh, you know, a few vials of blood. We then take that data that came in from both sides and we basically push it right through our machine learning AI system. And that's where all of it starts. 
Okay. But let's go back to that testing. Cause it's not the same testing that you go, not the same blood testing that you go to like your normal allergist and get it's, it's different. That's correct. It's actually very different. Um, you know, most uh, doctors or allergists, they will run um, kind of an old method of, of testing uh, that is called a RAS test or an immunocap test. And that's okay. Um, you know, it, it's been out for a while and it has a degree of accuracy. The problem is accuracy is not very good. And so, you know, if you're going to be right on a, on, a, on a number, you need to have some accuracy behind it. What we do is we take a single food. So let's say we take walnuts. And instead of just running that test, we run that test plus typically five other types of tests around all the deep sequences that are inside a walnut. And we use that data to really understand how an immune system can look at something like a walnut. What that does is instead of being right 50% of the time or 30% of the time when you do it the old way, we are right very much 99 to 100% of the time. And that makes all the difference. So if we can dumb that down, let's use the walnut example. There's basically five or six, to your point, uh, proteins that are different inside of that walnut. And your body may be reacting to none, one, two, three, four, five, whatever. But we don't know that with the typical tests that we've done historically in blood and skin testing for food allergy. That's absolutely correct. So then what happens next? The, that same type of protein inside the walnut, let's call it like protein B in the walnut, that can exist in other foods also, right? See, Natalie taught me something. You're, <laughs> you're nodding, but they can't hear you nod. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're right on it. Uh, so, so think of it this way. There are, are two sets of data that we're really interested in knowing on every single patient. One is what your blood and your system is telling us. And then we also want to know what the evolutionary biology has taught us, right? So in other words, we know that walnut is a walnut, but most people don't realize that walnuts are, are highly related to pecans, to Brazil nut, pine nut, coconut. I keep going, but there's specific sequences that pay a lot of attention. And indeed, when we study those other nuts, we are actually looking at a whole family. So we can take that whole granular set of information and use it to the advantage of a patient and say, look, now we know which of these proteins are a big problem, a medium problem, or no problem. And that's where the cycle of therapy starts. Which then starts to explain why some people react to all tree nuts, just because we're talking about that group, versus some people react to only the Brazil nut or only the walnut or whatever. It's which of those threads inside of that food are problematic for them. That's correct. Okay. So let's escape out of nuts. Does this map, if you will, map of food proteins go across everything, all the foods? Uh, to everything that we have historically looked at for the last 16 years, that includes milk, eggs, um, fish, shellfish, seeds, grains. Uh, in those categories, we have certainly done our job right, and it does seem to be very much reproducible. Um, there are a kind of a small number of foods out there, things like mushrooms, uh, you know, foods that are really hard to classify. Those are things we are taking into our research lab to study more, and hopefully down the road, we can even tackle those food proteins as well. Okay, what about pork? So meat uh, actually classifies within our current system, so that'd be affirmative, so we're good on that. Winning, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, animal proteins are definitely a, a big part of what we do. All right, cool. So not just the top nine or top eight or top whatever number, but rather everything that you've had an opportunity to classify and, and kind of place on the food allergy globe. Everything we've been able to study. Absolutely right. All right. So 
after the patient goes through that initial testing and that initial questionnaire, what happens next? You come up with their map of what they're sensitive to or allergic to. Give me the right vocabulary there. What do you do next? So this is, if this was to be done manually by a bunch of mathematicians and, and humans, um, it would take a long time. Uh, you know, 15 years ago when I was with a group of people working to build this up, it would often take for one single patient uh, somewhere around six hours uh, to do the construct. Um, now it's done in a millisecond um, because it's all done through machine learning and AI, which makes life a lot easier uh, for our system and our team. And it also improves safety for our patients. So it, there are still human operators involved here, but they're simply giving it a thumbs up or thumbs down uh, based on all the knowledge that has been accrued in the, in the area in this space for all that period of time. Okay. So once, then... we have, once we have that really important snapshot built up, that snapshot states, what are they most anaphylactic to? What are their classes of proteins that are biosimilar? And then most importantly, we compare that data to the hundreds of trillions of data that has already been collected in our patient populations. So that's a very powerful tool. We run about 300 million rows of data a second in this company to make this process work. So when we take that snapshot, which is unique to each patient, we can then say, okay, which foods can we expose this patient to safely at what rate of exposure to predict how their immune system will drop down their allergenicity? So I'll give you, go back to the example of walnut. Did you just use the word allergenicity? That's correct. I like it. All right. <laughs> so walnut has six you know, technical proteins that have been identified. There's mm -hmm. probably we want to study, but right now that's where we're at. Right. Let's say I can take somebody who's got a walnut, you know, level at a hundred. They're just off the charts high. Well, if we can cross match four out of six proteins, which means we're giving them pre-treatment foods, conditioning foods, different types of proteins that are found in nature. This can include vegetables, fruits, it can include other nuts and seeds. Before we ever actually expose that person to walnut, our goal would be to reduce that number from a hundred down to somewhere around 20. So you're doing an 80% drop before we ever give them their first walnut. And we measure that. We are, it's literally measured at a molecular level and we will make our moves based on that data shift. And then of course, once we finally expose them to walnut, we're able to turn that dial all the way down. And now they're able to consume, you know, basically a cup of walnuts without any issues. They can eat, you know, baklava, any other kind of great food that has walnuts in it. Okay, so I want to make sure that I understand. Give me a food that's not a nut that's close, that has a protein that's shared with walnut, because I'm going to make up dumb examples if you don't give me a good example. <laughs> pine nuts. Okay, so pine nuts are related to walnuts. So let's say I'm, I am, I've had reactions to walnuts. We know that walnuts are bad, but pine nuts have been okay. You give me pine nuts to desensitize me to walnuts because there's shared proteins between the two? I would not use the word desensitize. I would okay. say we cross match uh, because cross -match. Again, we're giving the patients quite a bit of the protein. Um, you know, most people, if you eat pine nuts, you're going to have it in pesto or whatnot. Sure. You know, the typical pesto, you know, salad, you might have anywhere between, you know, 15 to 20 pine nuts. In the entire six month period of time, six months that we're conditioning the system with pine nuts as an example. Condition is better than desensitized. I like that. Okay. In the six months you're conditioning, that patient is likely going to be exposed to three to four kilograms of pine nut protein. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. Yeah. 
but, it's but done that's over. a lot. <laughs> it's done over time. Nice and smooth. Yeah. No, I mean, I do, I have a, a, a vision of the jar of pine nuts that goes home. So, so conditioning towards it, like, like I have this picture in my head of like a globe with all the different foods kind of mapped out and then like little, uh, you know, rays of either lit up or dark based on their reaction to it. And we're kind of marching towards the most reactive thing. Yeah. It's all about getting the the body set up for it. It goes back to transplant. It goes back to transplant. How do you get a a body ready to accept an organ? Well, we have to make sure we, A, pick the right organ uh, to bring into the system. We also have to prepare the recipient, the person who's receiving that, to To make sure. not reject it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you know how in regular food allergy testing, the old way, either by skin or by blood, you end up with both false positives and false negatives, right? I'm a good example of this. I've talked about this a million times. I have never once tested positive for shellfish. Shellfish has hospitalized me more than any other food. Okay. Blood and skin both seem to think that I can take a bath in crab and shrimp and whatever, and body does not agree with that right? I test positive for lemons on every test ever known to man. I can eat lemons all day long. No problem. So I'm a good example of how tests that we have traditionally done in food allergy fail. Do you have that same type of issue? Although I don't think as dramatically given the numbers that you see where someone in their history is reacting to something, but you're not seeing that part of the map lit up. I think it's a great point and a great question you're bringing up. Um, I do want to be clear, you know, our age group that we treat is six months to 21 years of age, 21, 22, by the time they start the program. Um, I developed this program, uh, you know, again, I'm boarded in a lot of fields. I I treat all age groups, but um, I learned a long time ago that if you are going to treat adults who are typically like, let's say even in the eighth or ninth decades of their life, their immune system is dramatically different than that of a very young person. And that's something we have to pay close attention to because your testing may go negative. And that doesn't mean you're negative. Your testing goes negative because of an immunological state of those cells. What you have to do is wake the cells up. And so essentially, if you wake the cells up, you will start to see positive results that are more and more accurate. What you've done is you become exceedingly good at staying away from all of these things that make you have a reaction. But the reality is that young people, particularly young kids, are not terribly good at that. It's either in their environment, it may be something their sibling eats. So that kind of cross-stimulation keeps that type of data more alive or more accurate. And you start to see that wane over time into adulthood. One of the reasons I ask is that one of my big pet peeves around food allergy, treatment, testing, whatever, is that the information, the quality of life effect that a positive test has whether that person's ever reacted to that food or not is frustrating (laughs) to say the least. And that's kind of the the impetus behind the question, right? Like we see these long lists of, of, of allergies that someone's never had a reaction to. And then they're changing their entire quality of life, avoiding all those foods. You know, I'd, I'd love to get rid of that type of problem with this type of magic. Well, you know, I would say it is frustrating. Um, you know, I, everything we do here is done under tight regulation. We follow incredible protocols, more than a drug company. And yet, uh, you know, the, the criticism we get some by some is, oh, well, you know, if you have somebody who has, you know, a histo- history of, say, you know, peanut anaphylaxis, mm-hmm. uh, and even though their values are 50 or 70 or 100, 
Um, it's our job to do a food challenge and prove that they're anaphylactic. And, you know, we offer that to every patient who wants to, if they, we, literally they sign that away. They say, we say, look, if you want to, by all means, we will challenge your child to prove that point. But less than 1% of patients want to do that because, well, the numbers are pretty obvious and the history is very strong <laughs> and they don't want to do that, which I totally yeah. understand. But the other argument is exactly what you stated. Um, we know that this person is avoiding these foods due to risk. And at the end of this program, if they're able to eat these foods freely, safely, and be monitored in a, you know, kind of a clean path forward, that to me is just good medicine. Now you add all the other aspects to it, the, you know, what we see on a molecular basis and what we see is, you know, remission and so forth. Uh, hey, you know, we'll, we'll keep pushing that along. I think that this is super duper cool and it totally touches on all of my math points. So uh, you know, it makes me, it makes me happy. Uh, so what kind of success rate do you see with your patients? So I always try to answer this question across several points. Um, if you look at just the highest anaphylactic food, so let's say somebody comes in and most people are anaphylactic to about three and a half to four and a half foods. And half is there just from the statistics. So, you know, if you're allergic or anaphylactic, I should say uh, to three to five different foods, our ability to knock off three to five proteins is very close to hundred percent. Wow. Uh, now, what we don't get any credit for is all the other work we did behind that. Uh, there are <laughs> dozens and dozens of foods that are at risk, dozens of foods that would become anaphylactic later in life. We don't declare that in our terms or what we do, but since we have the data and we see how that responds, we clearly know we're doing much greater work than, than what's stated. So you're able to predict what is likely to become an adult onset or later in life allergen. That's correct. So these high sensitized food states, which we know are ready to tip over, um, we see that we in fact see that right now in the general public as kids become more and more allergic. And the best example I can give you is a University of Chicago study that looked at about 18,000 individuals who had food anaphylaxis. And indeed, two thirds of people develop food anaphylaxis after the age of 18. That's right. Me too. So that means 28. Right. What, why is that? Right. You didn't have it when you were a kid. Well, it doesn't mean it was not present when you were younger. There were yeah. a certain set of factors that were building up and it shows up in the right circumstance. You know, anecdotally, I talk to a lot of people who have food allergies, obviously, because, you know, this is what I do. But uh, I have heard so many times and I can relate to this, that people with adult onset allergens and flaxies, uh, didn't like the food or had some kind of aversion to the food when they were younger. And that was certainly true with me with both nuts. Well, really nuts, pork and shellfish. Um, I was, I've never been a fan of, of any of them. Although as I got older, I, you know, kind of acquired a taste for shellfish, but I didn't have any allergies until I was 28. I, I, I wonder if that dislike, that aversion really is kind of that map showing us, Hey, this is not a safe place to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, I've been doing this long enough now where we definitely see that pattern. And it's very frustrating. Uh, you know, we have uh, uh, children who are here and we will always ask, do you have a, you know, is there a sibling? Is there another child in the house? Answer is yes. Uh, what is their chance of developing food anaphylaxis, at least based on our data, around 15 to 18%. So we ask them, are you feeding them these foods? No, we're not, because we're afraid that the sibling would have a reaction. So by avoiding the exposure, you're taking a partially sensitized child and likely going to progress that onwards, yeah. but it has to be done, you know, again, the right way. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the patient population that you treat. You treat pediatrics. I am not seven or eight decades old, but 
I'm also not pediatrics. How do, how do adults partake in a similar program or the same type of, of program? Well, I mean, I wish I could tell you we're accepting adults openly right now. Um, you know, the reality is we're at about 13,000 food anaphylaxis patients in our system right now. Uh, we're hitting about 50 to 70 remission visits a month wow. uh, to show you our scale. Um, you know, I built this up as a nonprofit. And when you do a non when you build a nonprofit, you are focused on a mission and you know, we were focused on kids. So that's kind of what targeted us. But more importantly, our uh, data or biobank, you know, is focused on kids. Uh, recently, we did start opening a few small groups of adults. Uh, and remember, it's different data. It's a different approach. And you can build it more or less from scratch. Um, I would hope in the next two to three years, we can have something very similar up for adults. Um, I actually believe uh, that it will be, in a way, a bit more difficult and in a way, much easier. I think it would be a bit difficult because the immune system has gone to sleep. And so there will be some steps involved in waking that system up safely. In addition, we're dealing with adults who may have potentially other medical conditions. It'll be easier because the adults who want to participate in this clearly want to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not apparent. Your patient child. compliance is not as much I, of an I, issue. <laughs> I think the compliance will be much better. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I've heard some stories about how kids get out of dosing their, you know, OIT and stuff like that. Um, okay, so what about other ways to expand the availability? What about geographically? People can't necessarily travel to Southern California, particularly in pandemic land. What are your plans to expand across the country? Um, well, right now we are uh, greenlit to open a site in San Diego County uh, in February, uh, and we are on track to do that. We would like to continue a West Coast expansion towards the end of next year. Obviously, uh, obviously, if we can really grow this, um, you know, at that level, we should be able to open multiple sites simultaneously. But again, I, I want to be very clear: this is such a new thing in medicine. The way it's done, the approach. Um, our, our issue is not just expanding. Our issue, honestly, is finding the right people and training them effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've achieved that. So now we just have to scale that part up. The right people who work at the at the clinic, the team that you've got, not the medical the right person. Patients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine in medicine, like, you know, you're so used to operating a certain way and this is totally different. Uh, so totally different. Kind of un unlearn that and learn a, a different set of methods. But remember, this is still a human operation. Um, so we have to make sure that they all share the same mission and goals. Okay. And then right now there's pieces and parts of the process. And I'm just going off of the information from your website. Pieces and parts of the process that are uh, covered by insurance, right? Right. And then there's pieces and parts that aren't necessarily. What about expanding your potential population to, uh, you know, less out-of-pocket friendly pockets? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have from from day one always had that mindset. Uh, that's my mindset. You know, I, this has been a, a difficult build. Um, you know, we have done, you know, obviously a lot of fundraising. I've put an incredible amount of money of my own money into this process. Uh, but we've always treated Medicaid patients uh, at no cost. And we've done that for over a decade and continue to do so. Um, we did start a diversity fund last year, and uh, that's been well utilized. Um, I am trying to uh, launch here in the next number of weeks um, an active military duty family um, a fund as well. So this is part of my, you know, part of my my belief system and, and my, my thinking as well. I do believe that insurance companies should 
cover this more widely. And I believe if we could accomplish that, that would cut costs dramatically for folks. Well, and thank we are you making for, progress. Yeah, thank you for teeing my next question up on like a silver platter for me. But what's the process for, I, I don't even begin to know where to ask the question, but what's the process for getting insurance companies to cover something? Is there a regulation or is there like a, how does something become kind of a standard of care or a common practice? You know, it's a great question because I believe the answer is no one quite knows. Uh, <laughs> it's the truth. I mean, you can go to you can go to four different insurance companies, and the same exact medication or approach has different coverage, and that just tells you something's wrong with our system. What I've learned, what I've learned in this uh, you know time frame is to be to be clear, is that you know we will always do our job. We were going to, we're going to show the insurance company how successful we are and what it is for patients. But in the end, they need to hear from the patients themselves. If the patient is the vocal individual in the process, I've seen many of our patients get everything covered uh, completely. It's quite remarkable. Uh, yet at the same time, if, if, if it, we are the people pushing it, they almost look at us as if we're some sort of research enterprise that, you know, I, you guys should be able to handle that on your own. Um, and so we're working hard towards that. And I hope with more volume, uh, more geographic representation, you know, we will get there. Uh, but it has certainly been uh, very difficult for the last few years. And does a protocol like this or the testing, does does that have to go through the same type of, you know, FDA approvals as, and this is all kind of in the news right now, everybody's hearing about FDA approvals and all that stuff, right? Does yeah. this type of treatment have to go through that same process? So five years ago, and, and keep in mind, I'm, I'm a hard academic. I've, I've submitted and been part of many clinical trials and, sure. and all that great stuff. Uh, five years ago, I sat down with a set of contacts I had at the FDA and said, look, I got this. I'm doing this work, and this is how it works. It's, it's, there's no drugs involved, but it's, it's basically AI and machine learning applied to allergy. And they looked at me and said, um, we're not sure what to do with that. And so they... <laughs> they, they they deferred me to the world of nutraceuticals, actually, and said, like, you know, you're like a, a, a probiotic or something. And I was like, well, OK, that doesn't work. I mean, we're using natural food proteins. Yes, we do uh, organize them in a very clear way, but that's it. So um, two, about a year and a half ago, in the middle of COVID, the FDA finally approved a machine learning division of the FDA. And so okay. we, we are now in the throes of that, and we are submitting our work uh, to them. I hope by summertime we'll have some good news on that, where at least we can say, hey, we have an FDA cleared or FDA approved process. But the truth is, uh, they don't really like to regulate this type of stuff. If it's not a pill or a shot, the FDA is largely hands off. That's why, like I said, the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, okay, that was easy. That's a, that's a clear path forward. But for things like this, it becomes more difficult. So then in the absence of kind of a rubber stamp from an agency, for lack of a better way to put that? What does the rest of the food allergy or food anaphylaxis medical community have to say? Um, what what do they think? How easy is it to convince or push away? Um, you know your your peers. Sure. Uh, you know I've been doing this work for 16 years, uh, and 16 years ago when I first started developing these concepts and strategies. Uh, everyone else was not interested. There was nobody in the space. About 12 years ago, more people started doing OIT, and that mm -hmm. became popular. Mm -hmm. um, but this is not OIT at all. 
And so they they largely just lumped me in as a different version of OIT. That's kind of what, what I was called. So they didn't know who I was or understand what we were doing. But about four or five years ago, when OIT started kind of not gaining any steam and really started having a lot of other problems, uh, you know, the only people left were this program um, and, and a pharmaceutical uh, pill or a peanut pill. And now even that's having difficulty and we're still obviously growing very quickly. So I'd say at this stage, um, probably one out of two allergists are uh, positive on our program. You know, they understand that, hey, it's complicated. The example I give to an allergist, I say is this. If you're a kidney specialist, uh, you're a kidney specialist, but are you a dialysis specialist? Right, dialysis is the kind of most critical and most complex form of kidney failure. Uh, very few kidney doctors do that work. They do just the general kidney work. Think of yourself, if you're an allergist, you know, the, the kind of alternative form of work that we're focusing on here is very complex. And that's what we do. And that's a small percentage of your practice. But let's give those kids uh, a chance in a better life, a chance at remission. And obviously, all the publications and the work we do and, you know, I'd say the transparency of our organization has helped. Um, but that's where we stand, I'd say, across the United States. That number may be a little bit less, but, you know, the numbers speak for Based out of a lack of, of knowledge more than anything else, I would think. Yeah. And, and, you know, we have about 500 plus physicians, kids in our program, and that speaks volumes. That we, have allergies, we have allergies kids who are in our program and that speaks volumes. Yeah. Super interesting. So what have I not asked you that I should be asking you? And is it TIP or TIP? What, how, how should I refer to it? You know, I coined that term um, a long time ago because it really describes what we do. We're able to induce tolerance in the system and it's a program that it, that is globally focused on that. And I'd say the one, I'd say major, uh, I'd say conclusion after all these years is that we are able to take the most complex cases and treat all of their allergens simultaneously through a lot of complex steps and processes and math. We're able to get them to a point where they only have to eat some of those primary food antigens or allergens once a week. The rest of the time they can eat whatever they want. There's no rest period involved. Once they're done, they can actually, you know, if they anaphylactic to peanuts, they can go eat a bunch of peanuts and get back on the soccer field, right? We're able to monitor the patients indefinitely. Literally, come back once a year. We can track their molecular progress. We have an app that we just built up that will be going live here in January for our patients, patient-specific, reminding you, telling you, keeping you engaged, gamifying the, the process for the young folks. There's so many things we're doing to make this a lifelong success that those are the things that never get talked about. You know, like I said, we can talk about the kids who are actively in treatment. Yes, it's safe. And yes, they're in a safer place. And yes, we can hit remission. What about the ones who are out five years? What are the ones who are out 10 years? When I talk to them, it's almost like they were different people. Like there was just another, you know, person that they were. Uh, the amount of time saved, the amount of money saved, mm -hmm. the amount of uh, anxiety that's gone. Um, it's really remarkable. Uh, you know, again, this is not, that's the part I never knew I was going to, you know, play a part in, but seeing it now is really, um, it's, it's very much motivating to continue on and, and keep, keep growing this. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I think that it is super duper cool. And now I'm going to dedicate myself to convincing you that I can be a part of it. Uh, <laughs> tell everybody how they can connect with you online. Uh, awesome. Thanks, Andy. Uh, SoCalFoodAllergy.org uh, is the easiest way to get a hold of us. Uh, you can also, I do encourage everyone to talk to their doctors or pediatricians, their family practice docs. We have a direct line for refer, uh, for providers as well online. 
uh, we will be happy to speak to you. We have a full enrollment team who's ready to help um, uh, at the dial of a problem. Perfect. And then here we bring ourselves to my favorite little part of two truths and a lie. So you're going to give us three facts about yourself, one of which is, you know, not a fact. And don't tell everybody the answer. <laughs> Listeners, if you want to know what the answer is about Dr. Randawa, then you're going to have to come and talk to us in the comments on social media or on your favorite podcast platform, Two Truths and a Lie. Oh, I love it. Okay. Number one, I am an avid boxing fan. That means boxing, and putting the gloves on myself, and obviously uh, watching and enjoying boxing as a fan. Number two, I was on a dance team in college and uh, actually won uh, a, a title or two. Number three, my favorite food as a food allergy guy is uh, mango. Interestingly, mango was my son's first food allergy that he has now grown out of and eats mangoes like they are going out of style. Thank <laughs> you so much. This has been so informative and such an important conversation to have. Like I mentioned, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Dr. Randawa, thank you for being here. Listeners, as always, thanks for sticking around. And this has been the Shandyland Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah.